0: series in the Psalms. Um, getting ready to start First Timothy, we are going to um, look at a, a Psalm of David. It's the first Psalm in the Psalter to have a Psalm title. It's also the first to be clearly ascribed to David, and, and David's going to write the majority of the Psalms, especially the first two books of the Psalms. Nearly all of them are of David. It's also unique in that it's the first psalm that gives us the occasion of its writing in the title. Seventeen psalms in the book of Psalms contain um, hints or clear out declarations of what were the circumstances surrounding the composition of this psalm. It's also the first psalm of lament. And it may surprise you to know that the book of Psalms, the majority of the psalms, are psalms of individual lament. People of God crying out to God, Help me, deliver me, give me grace. In fact, Psalms 3 to 7 are all Davidic laments crying out to God for help. And so I hope that we will find great comfort as David did in the Lord and in his word, and that we in our trials will be encouraged. Let's read the third psalm. <clears throat> A psalm of David I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O oh Lord, save me, O oh my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salah. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your word and, and, and this lament of David in, in a time of his great desperation and fear. We rejoice to see his boldness, his confidence, and pray that you would show us how we can be bold and confident and peaceful in our trials, in our fear, in our struggles. So, Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and give the increase in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalm title becomes key for helping us understand this psalm, knowing that this was written when David fled from Absalom, his son. And just a brief word, the psalm titles are inspired. In our oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew and the Greek Septuagint, they're always there. And so we have every reason to trust that they are scripture. And it becomes very helpful. In fact, as we look at the context of exactly what happened with Absalom, we'll see the connections with Psalm 3. And so, keep your thumb in Psalm 3, but we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so going over the story of Absalom's rebellion and David's sin that brought it on. So, turn back with me to 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. We're going to look at the story in three parts at the top of your notes um, in that little background box. We've got the text that we'll be looking at. And everyone, I'm sure, knows the story of David's murder of Uriah the Hittite. His stealing of his wife Bathsheba and his cover-up that followed. And how for nine months he hid his sin. But God loved him too much to leave him there. God loved him too much to leave him in his sin, so he sent Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet rebukes David, and and David confesses his sin. And even though the Lord's going to forgive him, There's going to be consequences. There's going to be terrible consequences to David's sin. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Nathan speaking. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord Behold, I will raise up evil against you from out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie down with your wives in the sight of all the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die so God's mercy is seen here David has deserved the death penalty he's not going to receive it but more importantly the Lord's forgiven his sin and yet this terrible announcement that the sword will not depart from his household and that he's going to raise up from his own household a sword and that David will be publicly shamed he stole a man's wife secretly someone else will steal his wives publicly And it's not long in the story before we see this begin to actually bear fruit. In chapter 13, there's the terrible story. David has many wives, and so he has many sons and daughters who are half-brothers and half-sisters to each other. And he has a son named Amnon, and his half-sister is Tamar. And Amnon burns with desire for Tamar, and he sends for her, and he lays with her and rapes her. And then he casts her off. And when Absalom learns of this, because she's his full blooded sister, he is furious. And he bides his time and he waits two years. He puts together a feast and he assassinates Amnon. And then he flees. And he's gone for a while. And Joab talks David into bringing him back. And David allows him to return, but he refuses to see him. And in chapter 15, Absalom begins his coup, his revolt. And he does it by turning the hearts of Israel away from David. He sets up his own mock court out front of wherever David would hold justice. And his people would come along, he'd lead them over to his court, and he would deal favorably with them, and he would render verdicts. And and picking it up in verse 4, chapter 15, then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he put out his hand to take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he's crafty and he he begins to pull the people of Israel away from David. Jump down to verse um, 10 to 12. Absalom now kicks his revolt into action. Um, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept Increasing. So we've seen David's sin and its consequences, Absalom's conspiracy and revolt, and then David's flight. You've got to understand, David is at peace in his borders. He doesn't see this coming, he's completely caught off guard. He's the king of Israel, the Lord's anointed. I mean, just last week we saw Psalm 2 and all the wonderful promises that are offered to the Lord's Christ and anointed. And David gets A messenger, in verse 13, came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down on us ruin and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so one moment, David is a carefree king. The next moment, he's a fugitive fleeing the holy city. Jump down to verse 24. And as he's getting ready to leave, he does something notable. And I want to mark this because it'll come up in Psalm 3. So David gets news of Absalom's revolt. And he just flees. He even leaves his wives behind um, to care for the house. And that's how Absalom's going to get a hold of them And fulfill the prophecy of God from two chapters before. But... Verse 24, And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came up also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me both see it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do with me what he seems good. So Abiathar and Zadok think, well, wherever the Lord's anointed goes, we're going, and we're taking the ark with us. Perhaps they are afraid of leaving the ark as a spoil for Absalom, but notice David's great faith. He knows that the ark is not a magic rabbit's foot. Eli's sons bring it out into battle at the beginning of 1 Samuel, thinking um, Sort of like the Raiders of the Lost Ark theme. Whoever has the Ark can't lose. And God says, oh no, you can lose with the Ark. And the Philistines get the Ark. And then the Philistines don't want the Ark. And they send it back. Um, Because the Ark goes on a campaign of conquest and comes back with spoils of war. If you remember, in a cart filled with gold. The Ark can take care of itself. David knows that. And so what he says is, look, leave it here. What matters is God's favor. And if I have the Lord's favor, he'll bring me back. And if I don't, it's not going to help me. So he leaves the ark there. And then down in verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So here's David in great mourning, leaving Jerusalem, going up the Mount of Olives, in some sense like his greater son one day would weeping lamenting with the people with him and David has to flee so far he goes across the Jordan that's how fearful he is of Absalom and the revolt he crosses the Jordan and sets up camp on the far side of the Jordan and if this isn't bad enough I mean just just think of having a bad day here you're just minding your own business you're the king of Israel and word comes, your own son has mounted a coup, and they're out to get you, and you got to flee. And you rise, and you flee, and it's nighttime, and you're barefoot, and you're weeping. And when it rains, it pours, because in chapter 16, pick it up in verse 5, David gets some persecution along the way. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemaiah said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And he just curses him. And ironically, David has brought this upon himself. It's, it's not for the issue that Shemai lists. David's taking of the kingdom from Saul was completely righteous and in accordance with God's will. But we learned two chapters earlier, David very much did bring this on himself by his sin. And so the, the curse must have stung as David knows there's some truth to it. No, I'm not guilty of what you're charging me with, but I am guilty. And yes, I did bring this on myself. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But The king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, then who shall say to him, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more Um, now may this Benjamite, Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. And it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And so David in one moment goes from a carefree king to a fugitive in exile. And he's surrounded. This this guy Shemite is just following him on the ridge, throwing rocks and cursing at him laying his sin upon him, charging with wrongdoing. And David, with his head down, just takes it. Doesn't fight back, he takes it. He's just broken. Now ultimately, Absalom's rebellion is going to fail. He's going to be killed in a battle, his hair caught in a tree, and the kingdom will be restored to David. But Psalm 3 now, if you'll turn back there, this is this backdrop and setting of Psalm 3. And and the reason why I want to unpack this, I want you to understand just how big of a deal this was. Just how upsetting, terrifying this was. How how David's soul within him must have been boiling over in fear and anxiety. Because if the Lord can sustain David in such a terrible situation, then surely he can sustain us. It's, It's not likely that any of us will be kings of countries in flight. But I'm sure we can know what it feels like to be blindsided by an enemy or an adversary, to be slandered and accused, to feel like everyone's against you, to, to, to feel like you're running for your life trying to get away from something. And this has been included in the book of Psalms for God's people to give us hope and instruction. So we need to see what does this mean in David's life? What does this mean to David? We've got to look at the context, but then we've got to learn why did God choose to add David's prayer, his, his psalm, in the scripture, well, it's for us and for our instruction and for our encouragement. So we're going to learn then how David fights discouragement because he says some pretty bold things by the end of this song. Now it's helpful in this psalm to look at the structure. The three salahs that occur—they um, occur so far in the right of my margin. I, I forgot to read them when I read the text. They also are part of the text. It's a musical or liturgical note, and as best as we can understand it, it means. Instrumental pause interlude and it, it really nicely divides the psalm up into three sections that we're to look at three sections so first we're going to look at David's peril in the first two verses David's peril and there's really just two points what David is doing is he's laying out his grief his complaint to God he's using honest language just letting the Lord know what it is he's frightened of letting the Lord know what it is that's bothering him he says, "O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in the Lord." Do you see that repetition of the word "many"? Do you get the emphasis? Even as we read the story in First, Second Samuel fifteen, the conspiracy was growing. It was picking up speed. It was getting bigger. Absalom was picking up more and more supporters, and David is aware this is getting bigger and bigger. It's not slowing down. It's picking up speed. Many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation in him. So David's aware that this opposition to him is growing. And that's frightening. It's bad enough to have enemies. It's it's worse to have enemies and know that you're gaining enemies. And secondly, we look at the slanderous accusations of his enemy. And this probably is what stung the most. You know, in Psalm 2 last week, we saw the nations raging against the lord and his anointed and their plot their words out of their mouth were well, let us cast off his bonds but this is a very different enemy last week psalm 2 focuses on the enemy out there the nations but here who's the enemy it's david's own countrymen isn't it it's israelites and so they're not at least in their own minds openly rebelling against god They're not saying, we hate the Lord. What they're saying is, we hate you, David. Specifically, God's abandoned you, David. There's there's no salvation for him in God. It's it's a summary of what Shimei is saying. The Lord's judging you, David. He's left you, just like he left Saul. Just like Saul sinned away God's blessing, sinned away the kingship, and it got so bad that the Lord told Samuel, stop praying for Saul. He's done. Well, that's what their sayings happened to David. You ever felt that God's left you? That maybe you've done something so bad, he's done with you? Well, the wondrous thing of God's covenant with David and the new covenant is you can't sin it away. We saw that last week. The Lord says to David, when your sons sin, I will discipline them with the rods of men, but I will never, never Take my steadfast love away. But that's the accusation against David. And I think we can relate with that. You do something stupid, and then there are people saying, You got caught. It's all your fault. Told you so. Told you so. And it stings. David knows his own sin brought this upon himself. The Lord, in no uncertain terms, to the mouth of Nathan, told him what would happen. And as he's fleeing, it's got to be ringing in his ears. And if, if it's not, Shemai is there cursing him just to make him remember. And David takes it. But it troubles him. But he takes it. So that's David's peril. This is, this is the problem of, of inside the people of God, not outside. And it's, it's important to note that oftentimes I think the most difficult trials, the most painful betrayals are not from those people out there, but these people in here, family members, church family members, Christians, people who should be loving each other and striving together, quarreling, fighting, that, that oftentimes is the most difficult betrayal, it's the most difficult pain. And, and David cries out to God. We've seen David's peril. Now, the Lord's presence, person, and provision. The Lord's presence, person, and provision verses three to four. And three to four really serves as the center and crux of Psalm three. Verses one and two he lays out his complaint. In three to four he adjusts his thinking. And then the rest of the Psalm is just the outflow of that change of thinking. The the words in Hebrew but you O Lord is a strong contrast. So over here are what the wicked are doing. Over here what my enemies are doing. But as for you Lord here's what the Lord's doing. See, what David's doing is he's fighting back against his fear with who God is. Sure, I got lots of enemies. Sure, my enemies are growing. They're attacking me and slandering me. But you, O Lord. That's where David turns to. See, if he just kept focusing on his enemies, he'd be neurotic. But he focuses on who God is and it changes everything. And he focuses on God's presence. You are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head is presence, person, and provision. Let's take a look at some of these phrases. A shield about me, literally a shield surrounding me. And what David is saying is that he recognizes that his only defense, truly, is the Lord. Now that doesn't mean he just stayed in his home, you know, waiting the lynch mob. Oh, the Lord's my defense. I mean, he gets up and he moves, but he ultimately is not putting trust in his defensive plans, He's putting his trust in the Lord If we're in danger If we're under attack What can we put our trust in Well some people will put their trust in a large Retirement savings and some people will put their trust In you know other things And and it's not Bad to you know make plans David gets up and he flees but he knows His trust is in the Lord My ultimate shield and protection Is the Lord God almighty and Here's a question what can prevail Against omnipotence Anything. So, if the Lord is a shield surrounding you, how safe are you? You're safe. The Lord is a shield about me. Next, He is my glory. He's my glory, and that word for glory can mean a number of things. But I think here it means reputation or honor. It, it sets up the lifter of my head. David has no glory right now. He is a gloryless king. He is a shamed king. He's fleeing for his life. His own son has revolted against him. And the first thing Absalom does after he takes over the royal city is he sets up a tent on top of David's house and goes into his wives to publicly shame him and humiliate him. And show all of watching Israel, I am now in my father's place. So David has no glory and honor. At least not humanly speaking. But, but David says, "The Lord is His glory. The Lord is His honor." Turn with me to Jeremiah to 29, 29. Jeremiah 9. Very familiar passage that strikes the same theme. Jeremiah nine. Verses 23 to 24. I think this is no one verse. Jeremiah nine, twenty three to twenty four. Thus says the Lord: Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, for I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let not David boast in his kingship. Not David boast in his wisdom or his military exploits, but let David, let Marchdale Community Church boast in this, glory in this. We know the living God, and he knows us. See, David's earthly reasons for glory are crumbling. And so he's got to reset his thinking and realize where do I find my self esteem, if you will? Where do I find my dignity? Where do I find my reputation and honor? Well, it's the Lord. The Lord's my glory. I know God. He knows me. He's called me beloved and son. He's given me his spirit. He's given me his word. And he's made numerous promises to me that I'm going to inherit the world. Okay, so things aren't working out the way I want them to right now. Okay, so I messed up and the Lord is disciplining me for my good. But it's okay. Because I know God. I know Jesus. He knows me. And that's good enough for me. That's where David goes to. And and that that shift is huge. You've got to stop looking at the problem. Start looking at God. You've got to stop looking at earthly ways of measuring success. And start looking at eternal ways of measuring success. And then... Point C, he says, the Lord is the lifter of his head. And we understand this notion of someone walking with their head held high. It's pride. It's certainly the opposite of shame. And David says, it's the Lord ultimately who will restore his honor. It's the Lord ultimately who will restore his dignity. It's the Lord ultimately who will restore his position. The Lord will lift my head. And as I read that, I'm thinking to myself, how on earth does David say something so bold? I mean, perhaps if he were innocent, perhaps if David didn't bring this upon himself, we could understand him saying, hey, I'm innocent, I'm in the right, and I'm just trusting the Lord is going to vindicate me. But David can't say that, can he? David brought this on himself. This is a judgment. This humiliation, this shame, this is from the hand of God specifically for David's murder, and, adultery. and David knows it. So how can David confidently say, the Lord will lift my head? Well, I think the reason he can say that is he learned the secret of gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt. While I'm, while I'm explaining this, turn in your Bibles to Micah 7. Um, this insight arrived after the notes went to press. So um, grab a pen, because this is... This is this is really helpful. This is a concept I got from John Piper in one of his books, The Secret of Gutsy Guilt. Micah 7. How is it that fallen saints, God's children, being disciplined for their sin, how can they take hope? Because honestly, many of us, when we, when we mess up, we sort of want to act like the dog who's peed on the carpet. And it sort of hides in the corner, this tail between its legs, cowering. And that's not the way God would have us respond to our failures. That's not the way God would have us respond to his judgments. So I'm just going to read a quote from Piper and and this text. Gutsy guilt. To the fallen saint who knows the darkness is self-inflicted and feels the futility of looking for hope from a frowning judge, the Bible gives us a shocking example of gutsy guilt. It pictures God's failed prophet beneath a righteous frown, bearing his chastisement with broken hearted boldness. And he quotes Micah seven, eight and nine. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall I shall rise, when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I've sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to light. This is a contra- courageous contrition, gutsy guilt. The saint is fallen. The darkness of God's indignation is on him. He does not blow it off, but waits. And he throws in the face of his accusers the confidence that his indignant judge will plead his cause and execute justice for, not against him. This is the application of justification to the fallen saint. Broken hearted, gutsy guilt. Yes, David has messed up. Yes, this specific calamity is brought on by David. Yes, the Lord is disciplining him. And David takes it. He doesn't complain. Why are you letting this happen? He knows perfectly well. And yet, he turns around and he says, I am confident the Lord will again restore me. Don't don't mock me, my enemies. The Lord will restore me. If you're God's child today and you've sinned, you've done something terrible, you feel like, your relationship with God is is weak and distant? You feel maybe even his hand of discipline is upon you? Take courage. The new covenant is unbreakable. He will restore you. So don't cower in the corner, but run to his throne. Hebrews 4 tells us, therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace, that we may find help and grace in time of need. And when do we need help and grace more? than when we've just messed up and sinned. We learn the secret of gutsy guilt. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Not because of our successes or failures, but because of his promises. We know he will restore us, even if he disciplines us. It's for our good. He is treating us as sons and daughters. And that leads us to his provision that he hears and answers Prayer. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And this is a direct rebuttal to what his enemies are saying. His enemies say, there's no salvation for him in the Lord. And David says, not so. I cried to the Lord. He heard and answered. Now, I want to pick up on this, this word holy hill, which is Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is the location of the Ark of the Covenant, which David left behind. Because who's sitting on the human throne in Zion right now in this this song? It's Absalom, right? Isn't Isn't it wonderful that David does not say the Lord heard from heaven and answered me? No, the Lord heard from Zion and answered me. Absalom can sit on the throne, but God's still king. You know, Absalom, the usurper, can sit on the throne. The Lord is still calling the shots from Mount Zion, Remember David left the ark there? He, he knew God's still God. And if God is with me, I'm coming back. And if he's not with me, having a gold box ain't gonna help. The Lord answered me from Zion. And this is just bold, courageous praying and confidence. So we see the Lord's presence, person, and provision. It also means that David can't go too far to get away from God. I mean, he's... Miles away from Jerusalem and the Lord's personal presence, the Shekinah glory that was with the ark. And then he knows no matter where he goes on the earth, he can't remove himself from the Lord's love, from the Lord's presence. God is not just a God in Israel or in Jerusalem, but he is a God of all the earth. As we sang this morning, the Lord of all creation. So now, David as having changed his mindset changed the way he's thinking about things, has an entirely different attitude. I want to make an illustration. You ever drive down the highway on a hot day and the heat coming off the road distorts these things in the background, right? That's the way it can be with life. When when our trials and problems are big and up front in our face, they can start to distort how we perceive God and his promises and his grace. And if we don't flip that around we're going to be stuck chasing our tails or worse, spiraling down into discouragement, depression, anxiety. And so David has to flip it around. I got to look at God and who he is first. I got to remember, he's my protection and he's my glory. If, if, if God is with me, who can be against me? Paul says in Romans 8. You know, you and the Lord are a majority anywhere. Honestly, just the Lord is a majority anywhere. But you and the Lord is still a majority Anywhere. David's got to remember that. He's got to remember, look, it's the Lord who's going to restore me. And that leads to his prayer and the Lord answering him. And then we get a very different scene of David's outlook. We saw him in 2 Samuel weeping with his head covered barefoot. Now, in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. All around, isn't it wonderful that David has every reason to be anxious? He has every reason to be fearful. I don't know about you, but if I had just fled for my life and there was a growing conspiracy against me, I'd be looking for people with knives coming out of every dark place and corner. You know, I'd set up a sentinel guard and I'd be there with whatever weapon I could get—a stick or something—just sort of standing by the fire. You hear a, uh, you know, a, a twig snapping. You sort of jump around, and I'd, I'd be like that all night. Not David. He, he pours his heart out to God. He meditates on who the Lord is. He goes to sleep, and he sleeps like a baby. David's experience of peace. We're looking at David's peace in prayer. and David's experience of peace. He just sleeps. I mean, it's like, again, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, sleeping in a boat while the disciples are terrified. You do what you can do. You pray. You think on who God is, and you give it up to him. You sleep like a baby. In Scripture, sleep is said to be the gift of God. I mean, look just a, a chapter later at, at Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. Notice that same connection? The Lord's my only real security, the Lord's my only real provision. And, and in you alone, in you alone. Make me dwell in safety. You know, we lock our doors, and some of us may have alarm systems. But at the end of the day, we know those are only protections that go so far. And maybe some of us as children, or even now, can sometimes be anxious and afraid. You read about home invasions in the newspaper. And and David had even more reason to be afraid. He knows there's a hit squad after him. And he does what he can. He flees. He doesn't just stay there. You know, he, he takes measures. But at the end of the day, I'm in God's hands. And I've poured out my heart to the Lord. I've meditated on who he is. And I'm going to sleep like a baby. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And then look at the boldness. Not only does he sleep like a baby, but he's bold as a lion. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Well, we know why that is, because the Lord is a shield all around him, surrounding him. The Lord's on his side. The Lord's made promises to him, and now David's bold. He's not afraid. He's not full of fear and fright. He's bold and courageous. And then we get his prayer. Now, whether or not the final two verses of the psalm are the actual prayer that he prayed earlier, back in verse 4, or whether it's a subsequent prayer, I can't tell you with certainty. But it gives us his heart, and it's a bold prayer. David's expectant prayer, verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And so, in David's prayer, we see three things: he's praying for the Lord's retribution, he's praying for the Lord's rescue, and he's praying for the Lord's redeemed. So, those blanks are retribution, rescue, and redeemed. Look at them one at a time. First, praying for the Lord's retribution, and and honestly, this is the point where we can sometimes get a bit nervous. You know, there are some psalms that say some pretty rough things against the wicked. Honestly, this is pretty tame in comparison to something like Psalm 35. But how do you pray for God to smash the teeth of the wicked? Well, in part, maybe we shouldn't, but the anointed Davidic king who has a military empire can. That'd be one starting point. But more importantly, David is not praying that God kill his enemies. His enemies are, after all, his own countrymen. They are the tribes of Israel. The phrase... To strike them on the cheek is really a humbling thing. Jesus was struck on the cheek publicly. It's a way of knocking someone down. These people are built up in their pride against David, casting stones at him. And David kind of wants God to knock them down a notch or two, to humble them, to take them off their high horse. And smashing their teeth is really an expression of Taking away their power and their threat. In Psalm 58, verse 6, the similar expression occurs, O oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions. So the teeth are a picture of their strength and their power and the threat they pose. So smashing their teeth is the same as, you know, like declawing a cat, it's removing the threat. You know, it's not that David wants his enemies dead. He just wouldn't mind seeing them eating through a straw for a while. And and so he's not praying their destruction. He's praying that God would humble them and that God would remove the threat that they pose. And there's nothing wrong with that. He prays boldly for the Lord's retribution. They may not think they're attacking God, but again, he is the Lord's anointed. He is the Christ of his day. And so to oppose him is to oppose the Lord who installed him. I mean, this does connect back to Psalm 2. They may not realize that's what they're doing, but that is what they are doing. And so he also prays to the Lord's rescue. It's how this prayer begins. Arise, O Lord, save me. And then verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And, And again, this is a bold rebuttal to what his enemies were saying. They're saying the Lord's forsaken him. The Lord's done with him quote verse 2 there is no salvation for him in God and David says oh yes there is my God's a savior my God's made promises to me my God won't abandon me no one can snatch me out of his hand the good thing that he's begun in me he will finish and I'll call on him and he will answer calling for the Lord's rescue. And then finally in the last line of the psalm, he prays for the Lord's redeemed. His his prayer goes beyond just him and his circumstances. And this is another important point to note. Sometimes when we're in trouble, we can get so focused on our problems and our dilemma and our fear and our anxiety that we, we don't think about other people. But David begins to see himself and his conflict within the global picture of God's people. Your blessings be on your people. And he's seeing God's salvation of him fitting into a bigger picture of of the people of God and the grace it will bring to them. He knows that Absalom is not a godly man. And his rule will not bring blessing to the people of God. And so he sees not just his own immediate personal threat and danger, but the threat this poses to Israel. Israel. And so he's praying, God, not just for me, but for your people. May your blessing be on your people. Save me, deliver me, rescue me. And in closing, I just want to make a couple observations. At the bottom of your page, sort of in summary, when we find ourselves in the midst of trials, fear, and discouragements, we must remember to remember who the Lord is. Let me say that again. We must remember to remember who the Lord is. And I'm not talking about just a simple, oh yeah, I know God says all things work together for good. But this is back to that Psalm 1 meditating. That murmuring and thinking over and over again. Who exactly is God? What exactly has he promised? Where is true stature found? Is it in the eyes of men or the eyes of God? What are the ultimate values in life? And thinking through those things is what leads David to the flip-flop from fear and anxiety to peaceful sleep, bold as a lion. David's counseling himself. In later Psalms, he even speaks to himself. He'll say, soul, soul, why are you downcast within me? And we gotta learn how to fight back against the fear and discouragement, just like David does, by remembering to remember who the Lord is, to us, and what he has promised us, and to confidently call upon him to deliver us. When we find ourselves in the midst of trials, fears, and discouragements, we must remember to remember who the Lord is to us, what he has promised us, and confidently call upon him to deliver us. So a few more applications for Psalm 3. One. Be prepared for trials from those within the family of faith. These are not in your notes. Again, these these came after the notes went to press. But I, I trust that they'll be helpful regardless. Be prepared for trials from those within the family of faith. Yeah, be ready for the fight out there. But remember, it was one of Jesus' closest companions who betrayed him. Charles Spurgeon was kicked out of the Baptist conference. His Associate pastor, who was his brother, was the one who seconded the nomination for him to be booted. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards' church gave him the boot. Godly men and women have suffered from the world, but from friends and loved ones. Don't be surprised when some of your greatest suffering and difficulty come from people in your family, people in your church because they're the ones who it's going to sting the most from. We're not as surprised when those people out there treat us wrongly. But frequently it comes as more of a shock when it's people we know. Second, we've got to learn the secret of gutsy guilt. Learn how not to cower in the corner when we've messed up, but how to boldly go to God in confidence that yes, he may discipline us, but he will restore us. He will not leave us there. Three, remember to remember who the Lord is. Remember to remember who the Lord is. Four, find your security, your glory, and your pride in the Lord and not in the things of this world. Find your glory, security, glory, and pride in the Lord, not the things of the Lord. Five, let the Lord fight your cause. David's going to let the Lord fight for him. The Lord's going to lift his head. The Lord's going to protect him. Six, cast your concerns upon him in faith and do not worry. Cast your concerns upon him in faith and do not worry. Just like Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cast your concerns upon God and take a nap in peace. And finally, learn to pray with bold and courageous confidence. Learn to pray with bold and courageous confidence. Even if you're at fault. Even if you did it to yourself. David provides a wonderful example of just the bold courage of faith. This is the Lord we're dealing with and he's made promises to us and he won't leave us So as we close in prayer, I'd like to call the worship team up for our final song. And just isn't it wonderful that God has seen his saints through harder times than we will face. He's seen David through a military coup. And David learned in the midst of that storm how to praise and worship God. Lord God, we just rejoice that you were sufficient for David in his hour of desperation and need, that you were sufficient with your grace, that your person and your presence were enough for him. We just praise you that that he gave us a pattern and a model for fighting with fear and anxiety and discouragement, that he showed us how to counsel our own souls by looking to you, the author of life. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's downcast and discouraged Who's dealing with fear. Who feels the world may be against them, Lord. And Lord, I pray first and foremost that they would know you. And if they don't know you, that you'd bring them to faith in you. But Lord, if any of your children here today are, are feeling separated from you. Feeling like your hand is heavy upon them. Feeling like the world is against them, Lord. Help them to take courage in your promises and in your person. Help them to learn from the example of David. How to fight back of gutsy guilt and courageous faith. Lord God, bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen.